Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 319 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. On today's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Nick Stover. Nick is a landscape photographer living in San Luis Obispo, California, and today's conversation will provide you with inspiration and actionable tips to get more out of your photography. Nick has zero social media presence, yet manages to run a very successful photography business, including his education platform, naturephotographyclasses.com. On there, Nick has his own educational courses, but he's recently launched an amazing speaker series where you gain access to some of the world's best nature photographers like Alistair Ben, Mark Adamus, Sarah Marino, Aaron Babnick, Guy Tal, Josh Cripps, Sean Bagshaw, Nick Page, Jennifer Renwick, Adam Gibbs, Theo Bosboom, oh my gosh, and so many more. The list is growing day by day. Nick's also given our listeners a discount to access these amazing courses using the code FSTOP. You can watch the videos live or you can watch them at your convenience at any time throughout the year. It's an incredible platform and it's been highly reviewed by many of my friends. Each speaker series is around a theme like post-processing or grand scenic photography. And the next one that's coming out is all about black and white photography and it'll have Cole Thompson among many others. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Just go to naturephotographyclasses.com and be sure to use the code FSTOP for your discount on this great resource. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Nick Stover. Right, Nick Stover, it is so cool to see your face and have you on the show. Yeah, good to be here, Matt. Thanks. Yeah, of course. It's super funny because, I don't know, maybe maybe a month ago, I got out of nowhere, I got all of these emails or messages on Instagram from some of my friends like, hey, have you heard of this Nick Stover guy? He emailed me asking me <laughs> to come on his thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, he's a legit person. It's a real it's a real thing. And we'll talk more it's about that scam. later. It's not a scam. Yeah, it's not a scam. He's a real guy. <laughs> uh, it's funny. Well, for, for people that aren't familiar with you and don't know who you are, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, you bet. Well, it's probably a fair amount of the audience, except for maybe some of your speakers. But uh, yeah, my name is Nick Stover. I'm a full-time professional uh, landscape and nature photographer. I'm based in uh, San Luis Obispo, California. Uh, I am a Colorado native, so you know I don't even know if Matt gets to call that, even though he calls Colorado home. Uh, born and raised in Carbondale, just over the hill uh, from Durango, not too, too far away. Uh, so yeah, I live in San Luis Obispo. My wife and our f- almost five-year-old pit bull rescue dog, Quincy, who, uh, you know, is definitely the star of the show anytime we go anywhere. Not not me or my photography or her, so. <laughs> so, I am a native of Colorado. I was born in Boulder, and I grew up in Colorado oh, that's, Springs. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so actually, I'm a fifth-generation fifth native of Colorado. Wow, I'm only a, almost only a first, so geez. So. Yeah, yeah, my, uh, I think it's my great, great, Grandmother came to Colorado on a covered wagon. Wow, that's awesome. Legit, legit. Yeah, I think my dad, my dad came to Aspen in 1972 on uh, probably high on marijuana and uh, Coors or Strohs at the time. But you know, hey, whatever gets you here, you know. Whatever got him there. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, 
what what took you to San Luis Obispo? I mean, I feel like I personally would be hard pressed to leave Carbondale, Colorado. It's yeah. one of my favorite places in Colorado. It's close to some of my favorite mountain ranges and you know, it's it's a pretty nice spot. So what what took you away? That's too funny. Yeah. So I went to uh graduated in ninety six from Roaring Fork High School and uh the Rams and decided to make it real simple on myself and become a Colorado State Ram. Uh, so I went to Fort Collins for undergrad in construction management and then graduated on the five uh, and a half year plan because the skiing was just too good. And that was when they introduced the Epic Pass. Nice. Um, so I was able to go skiing quite a bit in college uh, and graduated right after 9-11 and moved to Boise, Idaho. Um, so I was in Boise for uh, almost 10 years. Uh, that's where I actually met my wife and, uh, you know, kind of got, I don't know, started in a lot of different regards and then um, was involved with selling a company and moved to downtown San Francisco. So I did the reverse migration. Nobody in their right mind would move from Boise in a house to downtown San Francisco in an apartment. But uh, we lived in San Francisco for three or four years and then uh, did a stop off thinking we'd be in good shape if we went to Visalia because we were closer to the Sierra. Uh, but that was not as good. And then uh, we stumbled into San Luis Obispo and uh, we like it here. So it's uh, we've been here. We, we discovered it 16 years ago on our honeymoon. Okay. And it's not L.A. and it's not San Francisco. We're on the Central Coast, you know, still can get up to the Sierra. And we have an airport here and all that other stuff. But it's it's California. I don't know if it's forever home. Maybe I'll come knock on your door in Durango someday, but we'll see what happens. So. California. It's funny. I was in a. After out of Chicago or out of Oregon, I was having some beers with Alex Noriega and Eric Bennett, and we got into this argument about what the best state is for landscape photography. And I think you can make a cogent argument that California is probably top three of the list. You know, it's got pretty much everything. It's got an amazing desert. It's got seascapes and oceans. It's got mountains. I mean, it's there's pretty much something there for everyone. Yeah, no, and that's definitely one of the factors. I can be at Death Valley in five and a half hours, or I can be strapping a backpack on and going into the Sierra in about the same time. So it's a little extra driving, but and then I can be on the ocean in, in less than 15, even though I'm a mountain guy, Matt, just like you. Come on. So Yeah, no, I mean, it's how do you, how do you beat mountains? Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, so I, I think that you are a very interesting character in our space i think you're pretty unique in in the landscape photography space you know you're, you're doing incredibly well for yourself and yet very few people know who you are and that's not <laughs> typical so how would you say that you've been able to differentiate yourself as a photographer that's a it's an interesting question because uh, you think about when i think about the concept of differentiation uh for me and i've kind of struggled through it for years of differentiate and separating separating myself and whether it's from a business standpoint or a personal standpoint and what is it is it what is it within differentiation that kind of makes me unique um and i think to get to that path it started with a little bit of that personal journey and that personal journey uh was about nine years ago i made the decision after i finished my master's to start with uh therapy uh cue the dramatic music of course uh, and I also made the decision about five years ago to stop drinking. And uh, because most of my life I'd wrestled with kind of some element or some form of different types of addiction. And through that process, I started to ask 
kind of uncomfortable questions about myself. Uh, and I got some uncomfortable answers uh, about the life I was living and the values I was kind of showing. Um, and so I think through that, the differentiation process, you know, to quote a little bit of even Socrates from the Temple of Delphi, knowing myself uh, became a big part of that uh, and leading into that path of wisdom. Uh, and then as I dug deeper into myself, um, I came less attached to kind of social acceptance stuff, more aligned uh, with my core values. Uh, so I spent a lot of time defining my core value works work and then how I was reacting uh, to other people and things around me. So that kind of led, which you'll probably poke at some point in time, uh, of the decision to get off uh, social media completely. And so for me, that was kind of part of that is I personally had a really unhealthy relationship with social media um, in such a way that I wasn't necessarily uh, having the relationship with it that I would hope in terms of acceptance, in terms of me understanding more about myself. And I found myself kind of in a, can I top this kind of mindset? Like I will be producing the most incredible images out there or this, that, or the other, or how can I do things that are different versus kind of getting down into more an authentic way uh, of producing like I think I'm doing now which I don't know if I always succeed in, but I've definitely been working towards that path of not thinking about what would sell or what would get the most likes, but more so what am I connecting to and how am I connecting to it within the environment? Oh, that's, that's powerful, man. I mean, you know, social media is such a toxic place, or at least it can be. And I, I know for me, I, I've definitely fallen into those traps of, you know, comparing myself to others and wanting to be the best and, you know, you start scrolling through Instagram or whatever, and you're like, oh, my God, I'm not very good at this photography thing, <laughs> you know. And um, but the thing is, uh, and and I don't know, maybe you'll appreciate this, but because I've, I've definitely thought about quitting social media for all the same reasons you've described. But for some reason, I'm very stubborn and I've decided that for me, social media is like an opportunity for me to continually grow as a person and fight fight my those darker things that are hitting me i'm like yeah i and it's weird because that seems like a really pointless uh thing to do but i don't know it's a good constant reminder for me to just be a better version of myself because my first inclination a lot of times is you know leave a negative comment or you know throw my phone out the window whatever but yeah, uh, yeah exactly there you go yeah, yeah it's forced me to 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 really try to be more authentic myself so I well, and I think I, that, yeah, that brings forth like a huge part for me was in, in this whole path I've been on and that path of just awareness, like being aware of what you're feeling or how you're feeling about a particular thing, whether that's within the landscape or as you're interacting with other people and what's going on kind of emotionally within you is like, it's a huge step. Um, and I think for me, I realized the social, like I was, I'd be grumpy or upset and not even know it was because I'd posted something that hadn't gotten the likes or the comments that I'd wanted or done something else. And now maybe if I went back to social, which I'm not saying I'm going to, uh, I would at least have that level of awareness, which I think it sounds like you do, which is, you know, really good, good for you to have that awareness of what could be happening or occurring all the way through. Yeah. You know, I think self-awareness is obviously incredibly important, but then what's equally important is then what do you do with that information? And, you know, 
I will admit sometimes I don't always make the right choice myself. Like I will still engage in negative feelings or thoughts, but you know, being self-aware that they're happening, I can then make the choice to yeah. do something different. Yeah. It's a big part of it, right? Making yeah. those conscious choices versus the unconscious or subconscious choices. Right. Yeah, no. No, that's that's good stuff. So so if, if you're not getting out there in terms of social media, like how is it that anyone even knows who you are? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, it's my incredibly charming personality, I'd like to say, but I don't think that's <laughs> what it is either. So um, I, I don't know how many people really, you know, do to a, to a huge degree, but it uh, kind of transpired um, right at the start of COVID. Um, so I'd made the decision right before COVID started to really go more I would say full time in my focus on photography. Um, and then, but that was going to involve a lot more art fairs and selling prints and going for gallery representation, et cetera. And then all that stuff got obviously upended. And so I made the decision to really go aggressively into online education. And um, so I started giving uh, presentations in the early days of COVID to camera clubs. And I would literally like show them every bit of how to set up Zoom and walk them through and they could use my Zoom account and so on and so forth. Then would be their first. I mean, there was dozens of clubs. It was their first online presentation they've ever, you know, given or whatever. Um, so I started building my email list there. Uh, and then I started really building my email list uh, through Meetup. Um, so I started running Meetup groups in different areas because um, Meetup started to pivot to online as well. And then I would do free events um, where people would sign up and I, you know, basically in exchange for their emails, I would do paid events and classes um, as well. And so I started kind of building a, a pretty good uh, group of people that were coming back kind of week after week for different things. And so I would tackle topics and things I knew quite a bit about or could speak well about, like, you know, for example, composition. There's lots of good information out there. I have some own personal things or light in particular, how to think about how to work with the light. But then I'd get into things like the psychology of photography or the creative process and those things have got people to kind of think a little bit beyond and a little bit further. Uh, and as that started to happen, kind of in conjunction, it just continued to kind of grow and snowball from there. And, and so far, it's continuing to do really well. So that's been exciting all the way through. Oh, that's amazing. That, that's a great strategy. I love that you've you decided to pivot with COVID and just roll with it, whereas some people probably found themselves in a massive panic and and may or may not have you know, moved quickly enough, but it sounds like you filled the vacuum of the void that was created by COVID and it actually has worked to your advantage. Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily, I was giving presentations to the, started giving presentations to UK clubs uh, in the middle of that. Now they, they do two hour long plus uh, meetings. So it was a big, big chunk of time, um, but it was a great way to pass the time and refine messages all the way through. So turned out to be a good pivot. Um, and then from there, it's it's building that kind of a I would, you know, I wouldn't say they're completely loyal, but a good loyal following kind of all the way around of people that have a pretty good sense of what they're going to get to. So I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the speaker series, but that kind of a thing too of like, all right, I'm going to bring other things in Well, I built up the credibility um, of what I'm being what's being talked about and what it looks like. And that's been that's been a big part of it as well. Nice. Yeah. So I think you had mentioned to me that you've done over 200 presentations to photo clubs. And I'd be curious, what all have you learned through that experience? 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, well, I don't think they're all going to be listening in. So, well, the funny thing is I mentioned the UK clubs. Um, they give you a formal round of applause at the end and they actually synchronize it for them all to turn their video back on and to, to uh, turn their audio back on. So you actually can hear and see everybody giving you applause. So that's really good for your ego. But we all know the British can oftentimes, you know, be more polite. So maybe they <laughs> I didn't actually connect. Uh, but I think in all seriousness on the clubs, and this is the thing I advice I give to people that ask, you know, that are wanting to get started or kind of do stuff. Um, it's a really good way to get your name out there. Um, surprisingly, clubs are kind of insular. Um, some areas and regions have really, really amazing photography clubs. I mean, I've had presentations of upwards of 600 people. Uh, I've been on for a presentation uh, through one camera club, which is absolutely amazing. Um, and they're craving new content. Uh, they can work. So they're, they're looking for people. So you have the big clubs that are probably either going to pay or it's going to go towards a charitable cause or whatever else. But then there's a ton of smaller, more regional clubs, and chances are they're within your area. Um, that are just kind of starved for anyone new, so to speak. Um, and I found that you, you know, I've had other people I've introduced that they hadn't done a presentation really before, but they worked on it enough to get into a good 45 minute presentation with flow and some cohesive kind of things to work it all the way through. Uh, and you know, maybe they start for free, but they start to build just a little bit of momentum uh, with the clubs and kind of going all the way through. So that's good. Um, some other things that I found are kind of helpful. The worst thing is when you pour your heart and soul into a presentation and you think you nailed it, uh, and you get to the end and there's absolutely no questions. And uh, yeah. I, remember the first, <laughs> I remember the first couple, I'm like, Oh my God, I should, I have, what did I do tonight? Did I, did I, what, what's wrong? And I realized a couple of weeks later, like some clubs are very encouraging of people asking questions. Um, so they'll like, you know, they'll, they'll, their leader will start asking questions right away or their club as a whole is really big on asking questions. Um, and so what I started to do is if I sensed that the club wasn't, was a little shy and asking questions, I would actually kind of start to seed a couple questions. So, well, after I finished this presentation, the most common question I get is blank and I'd give them that question and then I give the answer sometimes and then maybe kind of and then all of a sudden questions would start coming in, which was kind of nice because the engagement is a big part of it and people can be really shy. Uh, the other thing I learned <laughs> is be very careful if you're critiquing the head person. I did an image review of this one oh, club, no, the yes. head lady, and I gave this critique on an image of hers that I didn't know was hers and I didn't like it. And, uh, and then later I found out it was her image. I never got invited back again in part because I don't think she wanted to be critiqued. She wanted everybody to think how great she was. But um, they're going to oftentimes ask for image reviews or scoring, uh, and these have to be really careful. I one time inadvertently uh, agreed to do a judging that was a 90-minute judge, and I had to score 200 images in 90 minutes, and I will Oof. never, ever do that again. Um, so judging can somewhat be fun, but the uh, idea being if you are approaching a club or they're asking you to do this, Make sure that you're not giving it a score. Um, and I've gotten into some that are that are really tied into specifically like, oh, can you talk about what you like or don't like or what you would possibly consider changing within an image? Like, okay, move a little bit to the left, come a little bit down, do whatever else. Uh, and that's been actually kind of fun. And, <laughs> and then the final kind of one is uh, try to match your presentation to your audience. Uh, oh, I gave a yeah. Presentation. They requested this one on the psychology of photography 
to a, let's just say, a very conservative, uh, politically conservative club in a very politically conservative part of the U.S. Uh, and a very touchy-peely topic about psychology and all this other stuff. And I can tell for certain that the questions I didn't get asked at the end was was by a choice in that regard. So I think there's a little bit of curation of like sometimes asking the club a little bit, maybe poking around on their website if they're asking you to present all the way through. But if you get asked to present or you do present, um, have some ways also uh, for people to connect with and get any materials or charts, et cetera. So the things I went to doing um, was I have a QR, QR code on different slides. Hey, if you want this chart, QR uh, scan it with your nice. phone and, and it'll take you to a landing page. Uh, and so people could download that. They could get a free ebook. They could sign up for the newsletter as well. Uh, and I saw a huge increase in the number of people that were signing up for my newsletter after that. Uh, I also saw uh, the good thing was to put a put my email and my uh, website into the chat. Um, so if you had it in there, people would see it uh, and then visit in that regard. You can just tell them, yeah, I put my website or my email into the chat if you want to click it and check it out. And then the final thing is in terms of that was also offering a code. Um, so if I'm offering a course or a class or something, hey, use the code. Try 10 to save 10% um, on the code or save uh, 10% on this. And that was good because it increased that level of engagement and interaction with the, the, the audience, which was nice. Yeah, it sounds like you're using photography clubs as a more of a lead magnet, whereas I feel a, a lot of photographers are just using it to supplement their income. But I'm wondering if, if for you it's a little bit of both or are you happy to take on photo clubs that don't offer payment or how, yeah. have, you, how have you approached that particular conundrum? Well, I've, I kind of uh, burnt myself, let's just say, what's the term? Burnt yourself out, I guess, uh, in terms of the the number I was giving for a while. So now I do, I do, um, do a couple a month still, um, but I limit it to just like two, two a month maybe now. Um, and if it's not paid, it needs to be, I asked it for it to be donated to charity or something else. So for Example, I gave a presentation to the Maryland Photography Alliance, and they were charging 10 bucks a head, and it went all towards, uh, what do they call it, Flashes of Hope, a big charity for, for people with related to photography and everything else, and that was great. So I'll do charity-type work. The people sometimes will ask, what's, you know, what do you get paid? And the range could be, you know, some clubs will offer 50 bucks to, you know, 250 I'd say, is kind of the higher end. Um, if your guy tall, who doesn't even, he's not doing presentations anymore at all. He commanded, I think as much as 500, but it's, it's a hard way to make a living, um, mm -hmm. honestly, all the way through, but it was a good way to pass time through COVID for sure. And, and now I can be a little more selective. Um, and I get asked back. So some clubs I've been back, uh, I got one club, I think I've done eight presentations, oh, wow. um, really develop, developed a lot of rapport with the club. I love the members. It's kind of like, uh, you know, hanging out with F stop or something, just getting back in and getting familiar. So. Yeah, no, that's cool. I had I had to laugh when you when you said uh, matching your presentation with the audience because uh, I think it was maybe a year ago now I was asked to do a presentation of Camera Club on mountain photography and uh -huh. and of course like I got into the weeds on like you know physical training and like how do you <laughs> like and, you know like the audience is like a bunch of people that you know they're in their seventies and eighties yeah. And, you know, I, I had, I, once I realized my audience, I kind of had to like, okay, I should probably change this part of the presentation a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. But, like the, the UK audience, it's uh I used to do a presentation called the spirit of the West to them. 
um, and I'd walk a lot through the West. And I, I realized at one presentation, I was talking a lot about backpacking places I've been to, or this is an area I got into via rope to take this picture or something. And I was like, Oh, maybe I'll just admit that in the future and talk more about, you know, so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, they still like to see that and kind of live vicariously, but yeah, definitely. That's, that's a funny, that's a good observation for you too. For sure. For sure. Well, maybe this is a good point to pivot into asking a different type of question. Um, sure. I'd be curious if you could tell us a little bit about how, how you can find the right framework to evaluate your creative journey. Let's see. Let's think about this one for a second. So um, I think you've probably talked about the Wallace model of creativity with Colleen uh, or someone else in the past, like incubation, yeah. preparation, cultivation, kind of all the way um, through. Um, so that's definitely one to consider. Understanding the parts and pieces of the creative cycle um, has been a big one for me. So understanding, for example, when I get out into the field, what kind of stage I might be at before I just pull out the tripod, set up the camera. You know, I need to be cultivating ideas. I need to be incubating those ideas. I need to be understanding, kind of doing a visual inventory of what's out there uh, within there. So that in itself helps me to produce the images of impact and kind of bring the whole scene full, fully together, which is great. Um, in terms of the framework on my own creative journey, I've, I've balanced for a long period of time, probably like a lot of your listeners, what kind of metric am I going to use? Um, and the metric when we talk about is how am I going to measure? What's the framework? And I, as I mentioned, the framework of my gauge I was using of likes, follows, comments, reposts uh, as, an, as a measure of if I was progressing or not really didn't work uh, for me at all. Um, and I think one of the big things, so it's funny, I remember early on, uh, one of the galleries I was in, I used to have somebody, I had somebody say to me, man, you're, you're an amazing artist. And I corrected them. I'm like, no, no, I'm a photographer. <laughs> I'm a photographer. And uh, right around the time of COVID, I actually started in January 20. I started reading The Artist Way by Julia Cameron. And absolutely fantastic. My number one recommended book. Um, there's some powerful exercises in there um, to be able to see your creativity as a unique part of yourself. Um, and so for me, I started to now see my creativity as a separate part of me that needed to be cultivated and fed and not just taken for granted. Um, so I think what was happening for a long time is I was treating my creativity as a lesser part of the whole kind of equation. Um, and now I you know, like literally will have some elements of dialogue with the creative part of myself about what we're doing to cultivate it. And Julia Cameron talks about the things called artist dates where you specifically go out and you're basically trying to woo your artistic side. And it sounds a little touchy-feely, but when you read it and understand it, it's like you're not putting the pressure on yourself to now be out and about. So that's been good. Um, one, one of the things I have an obsession with is lists. Um, actually, here's one of my more recent ones uh, that are in here. You can see things are highlighted and marked off and all the way through. And I think what that really does is it offers me a really good bridge from one day to the next. Um, and so I can't remember who talks about it or where I heard about it, but the idea of leaving a bridge from one project to another, or one part of your creativity to another really helped me. Um, the other thing a list does is I'll sit down with a list of 50 items I need to do in a given month or something like that, just related. And some of them will be really small. And sometimes I'll have the brain power to tackle something that's really, you know, oh, daunting or whatever else. Other times it's like I need the most simple things on there. And rather than sit here and spin my brain, 
Um, so that's really helpful. It also gives me a gauge of progress. So I keep all my lists. I have a huge stack over my bookcase. Um, and I can, if I ever need to see basically how far I've come or what I've done, I can easily go back to that list and reference it all the way through, which is great. Uh, another huge gauge, uh, and I also can't say this enough. So my most popular class I teach is preparing your images for print. Um, and I say printing your work is the most powerful gauge we can do within our work. Uh, I print my work regularly. Um, I then reorganize my work. I see what fits together, uh, what doesn't. I try different sizes. I try different variations. I try different finishes. I also sometimes will do work in black and white. And that really kind of helps me to see where things cross over or what I'm drawn to. Um, and then seeing what works together. Um, so then one of the pieces is how am I telling a narrative with my work or how are pieces or parts fitting together or what am I being drawn to? Um, so I'm really starting to find, you know, particular textures or lines or shapes or things within that. Um, and so for me, it's going to art fairs. I do four art fairs a year, three to four art fairs a year. And so I can display my work and kind of move it around. But for people that don't want to do art fairs, you can pick up mats, matted prints, you know, just regular white mats and put your prints in there. Uh, and be able to kind of have those things, you know, tape them up on the wall, do whatever else. Uh, and that's been really, really beneficial to gauge what's going on. Because when you take something off the screen and put it in print, you see it differently. I mean, you know with what's behind you all the way through. And I'd say the last little bit of that evaluation of the creative journey is I have a creative routine. And I set up my workspace and I prime myself for the day uh, for kind of that highest level of success. And that starts for everything from... The coffee starting to journaling to doing some creative reading um, and then all these things throughout the day that kind of help me get back to if I feel like I'm coming off center. So whether that's the images within here, how my workspace is set up or where and how I work, um, that's a big, big part of he helping to keep me focused kind of all the way through. You sound like a, like a very organized, analytical person. I'm curious, what happens if you know, something goes sideways, like something interrupts your routine or, you know, like, well, yeah, you know, travel... like your refrigerator goes out, your oven doesn't work anymore. You know, something like breaks you away and you have to start over. Well, so today <laughs> I was out photographing, trying to photograph the uh, poppies on the coast. And my wife texted me as I was uh, getting gas and said, uh, this wasn't supposed to happen. And our, the person that does our lawn care had uh, accidentally put a rock through our, uh, our three panel sliding glass window. Oh, so, that's always fun. Yeah. So, so I think there's a lot of flexibility to, to run with that. And I was actually having a conversation with some friends last night about it. Um, and I think one of the things about it is travel. So when, as you travel in particular, you get used to basically when things really disrupt the norms and having yeah. to respond to that and be prepared for it. So I've always been prepared for that um, and not having the rigidity. So yeah, I like elements of organization, but not having the rigidity or clinging so closely to an outcome. Uh, and I think the periods of time when I get the most frustrated is when I'm like, I have to get something done today. There's an urgency to do something versus like, oh, here's my list. I probably need to get this done today, but the other stuff can kind of wait or I can kind of phase those in. So that helps quite a bit, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like I've I've kind of, I don't know, what's the best way to put this? I've evolved a bit over the last probably decade in terms of oh, being way more outcome driven. And, and now I'm just more experience driven. Like, hey, whatever, like I'm going to go to Spain in a couple of weeks. And, you know, 
whatever happens happens like i have no idea if i'm gonna take a good photo on there but it's gonna be super cool <laughs> you know well i was gonna i was gonna use spain as one of my examples so uh, the the other thing i do now when i travel is i um i take predictable coffee with me that's my one thing so because uh, spain we were going from hotel to hotel airbnb all the way around and it was like couldn't get a predictable good cup of coffee and that's one of the foundations of my rituals so after that i I take some predictable coffee with me, and I know I can at least get that part of my day started usually. So have have <laughs> coffee, we'll travel. Exactly, that's exactly <laughs> my mantra. So, all right. So <clears throat> I know earlier you had mentioned that you were in a gallery, and I understand that when you were represented by a gallery, and also you did a thing called Photo Fest, and you've said that both of those things were terrible experiences. And I'm curious if you could <laughs> tell us a little bit about that and. How did those two things help you grow as a photographer? Yeah. Uh, so the gallery, was, I was in a gallery. I wasn't, it wasn't a, like a prestigious gallery from that perspective. Um, so let's just be clear on that. I don't, I don't have any, there's no prestige around next over. <laughs> uh, I got to kind of knock that, that varnish off. But uh, so PhotoFest was fascinating. Uh, so I went there in, when did I go? Yeah, maybe maybe tell us what that even. Yeah, is. March of 2018. Um, so PhotoFest is a four day uh, festival. It's usually in Houston, and it brings together photographers for all all over the world for four uh, four days of portfolio reviews. And I think I had 16 portfolio reviews over those four days. And I started with the first portfolio review I had was somebody from the Getty, the Getty Museum. It was like whoa. Didn't expect that one. Uh, and you get to pick a little bit. You can look at their backgrounds and so on and so forth. Um, and I was kind of under the understanding that these people were there. You know, they could potentially add your work into their gallery or represent you. Um, but what I kind of discovered is a lot of these people do these kind of circuit reviews on a regular basis. And they actually kind of use it as a big part of their income. Um, so some of them were legitimately there. Um to evaluate potentially new work. Um, but some of them are there that they basically were trying to pitch you on going to see them at Santa Fe or Palm Springs or whatever else. And they were literally doing these on like on a revolving basis. And, um, the thing about it, and I've discovered since that time, it wasn't a critique, it was a roast. Um, and that was just probably <laughs> because, uh, I'm a nature and landscape photographer. And I actually specifically, I'm going to pull up what I, what were some of the three things I heard were my favorite. Okay. Let me pull this up. Here are the, some of the things I heard. People want to hear about the faraway places, but they don't want to actually buy those prints. Landscape photography is too familiar. People can appreciate it, but it's not really art. And unless you've been in Nat Geo, we're not actually that interested in your work. So, <laughs> oh, isn't that so, just frustrating? I mean, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I recently entered this stupid competition for I don't even remember what it's called, but it. You could tell it was kind of like hoity-toity, fine art, you know, like that's kind of their focus. But I was like, you know what, like I had a project idea and why not? You know, it's like, I feel like it was like 40 bucks or something. I was like, Ooh. yeah. And then they announced all of their winners and they were, there was not a single photographer that was represented in the nature and landscape space. It was all like, almost like Polaroids of you know, like super weird, esoteric, conceptual things yep. that like, and like almost like, not to sound, not to sound negative, but like 
it was almost obvious that they were just trying to be artistic. You know what I mean? Like exactly. And I, it was just like, really? That's what you guys like? Okay, cool. I'll peace out. <laughs> yeah, that was exactly. It was like um, that was exactly what they said. This one said something like. Uh, the work for the museum needs to be about, what do you say, conversation and dialogue. That's what your work needs to be about with a preference towards things that make people feel uncomfortable. And I think, remember thinking like, so you don't connect with my work because it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. It's because it makes you feel like awe and sublime, feeling of the sublime and all the other stuff. And I was like, I wasn't judging. Um, and the other thing I discovered is of the 16 reviewers, there's only one of them that was an actual photographer. Um, and so it wasn't, I think I went in with more of the critique mindset and idea than, than I was actually receiving. I mean, these people were genuinely evaluating my work to a degree of like, is it gallery worthy? And the answer was no. Um, and I have some senses of what I could change if I wanted to be there. And they, they talked about, I mean, one of the guys from Portland said, look, we, we only do work. We get, what do you say? He said, um, essentially that they're a nonprofit. They only exist because of grants and they only want to put work in place um, that represents something completely different than their audience had seen before. Um, but he did say something about, you know, the work, think of the photos in your body of work as a choir uh, that should be singing in unison, not as a cocktail party of loud talk. And that wasn't necessarily a criticism of my work as much as it was him really talking about, and this is the first kind of inclinations about the idea of a project and how do the things kind of go together um, all the way through. And I, I definitely had that. I was like, it was like the best, best of, you know, for me, so to speak of like, oh, look at this beautiful image and that beautiful image versus like something that was cohesively bringing it together. Kind of like the projects, you know, you guys have the projects in the NLPA book that are just fantastic and really showing some passionate projects that people have worked on and a cohesive body of work. And I definitely could say that was missing in what I was presenting there. I was just showing a interesting hodgepodge of images. Right. It's like, it's like the difference between a greatest hits album and like a really cohesively developed, you know, LP that's just got yeah. amazing flow and things like that. Like yeah. Pink Floyd, what is it? Uh, Pink Floyd, the wall. Like it's like a, it's a whole story, the whole album. Yeah. Yeah. So it was good. And then, yeah, so it was funny because then at the same point in time, um, <laughs> I was in my first gallery. It's funny because a lot of, a lot of galleries, not all galleries, but a lot of them are kind of set up in their a little bit of like a, a, not really a pyramid scheme, but a little bit of a scam. And this one was pretty bad. Um, so you had to work a day a month in there. You had to pay them rent to display, you know, have a space within there. And then they also received 40% of the commissions of the work he sold. So you had to take time out. You had to pay rent. You had to do that. So if you were gone or whatever else, then you had to, you know, you had to pay somebody to cover your time if you weren't there. And then the, other, the two other issues were one was one of the gallery owners was a photographer himself. And he would always p place his work uh, ahead of your work in terms of the displays or whatever else. Um, so that was an interesting thing. But the biggest thing, I guess, uh, and this is some of the lessons learned kind of out of both experiences, was uh, they had control, and gallery owners do, of all the other artists that were in there. Um, so I couldn't control like where and how my work would be displayed. So I'd have my stuff next to some you know, crochet person or some type of other plein air painter or something else, and their work was probably interesting, but it didn't, didn't bring about that flow. Um, and so what I learned kind of from both experiences and what I do now, too, is 
finding that audience that appreciates the work. Um, so I was talking to these big city museums, these big city galleries. They're not going to appreciate and connect with my work and the style of the work I do. But local art fairs, those within kind of a hour radius of where I am, that th- that audience appreciates the work I do. They like the connection, so on and so forth. But I also think there's opportunities for um, people to be able to have outlets within your work. And so I'm in a couple galleries now, <clears throat> and I pay them 40% commission, but I just drop my work off, and then they you know put it in card racks and folio stands and some stuff on the wall, et cetera, et cetera. And it's been a huge thing for me to be able to test things. So I, I'll drop off a stack of new cards, and if I come back in a month or two months and the new cards of, you know, of these 20 new cards, these ones have sold, well, I'm knowing now that maybe I want to print that work a little larger. It's connecting with an audience as well. And then the other part for me has been showing my work in ways that I can control it. So being in the art fair, being doing the art galleries, every single one I set up, I do 10 by 20 booths. Um, and I'm just always constantly like tweaking and modifying in the layout and trying different sizes. Uh, and I love that part of it. It's a ton of fun. Um, yeah. and that's been a cool thing. So, and a huge investment. Well, a little bit. Yeah. The, the resale market is not as good on you on, uh, used art fair equipment as you'd like, but the first time I actually, uh, funny, uh, TJ Thorne had put something together about when he built his own panels when he was doing art fairs, and I kind of followed the model he used, and that was the first year. It was like built, I built my own art panels, and I saved. I mean, it was super cheap, and it was a little teeny ten by ten, and I barely had enough work to finish, fill the ten by ten. And now I do a, a ten by twenty. I had sixty two pieces at the last show, um, and I just kind of worked. And that's kind of a theme: is working your way up all the way through. So. Yeah, instead of like just going all out and hoping for the best. Yeah, exactly. Going all <laughs> out and realizing, wow, I just printed a forty by sixty that uh, nobody's ever going to buy. But I've never done that. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, me neither. Yeah, exactly. I had to, I had to give one away the other day. <laughs> oh my god, I have a whole entire wall in the garage. Anytime somebody says, "Ooh, what's that picture?" and I'm like, "You want it?" and they take it, I'm happy. So, but. Yeah, there there is that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have a, I especially stuff from earlier on in my career, you know, it's like, oh, you're super excited about it. And, you know, and then it just doesn't connect with you anymore. And you really don't even want to try to sell it because it doesn't yeah. represent doesn't you represent anymore. Me. Yeah, I've, I've worked. It's like, I mean, I still have some work, I would say, that leans more towards the saturated side in terms of selling to the local audience. They want the colorful sunsets down here. And I, I love the colorful sunsets we get down here. But I have some early work that's like so saturated. I'm like, I just, I, I can't, I got to just get rid of this. It just needs to get going to the burn pile because it's just so over the top. But I was curious if we could explore this idea of, you know, artistry and landscape photography a little bit further because, you know, you went through this process of having your work evaluated by all these people who critique work at these, you know, at PhotoFest and, and they have galleries and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I've heard this from lots of people before that, you know, oh, landscape photography, it doesn't say enough. It doesn't do enough. It's not artistic, quote unquote. And I've gotten into lots of, I don't know, heated discussions with other photographers on this topic because I, f- I feel like there's a, you know, yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's one camp of people that are like, everything that I make is art and it's because I made it and it's special and it's art and it's yay. Art, <laughs> art, art, Right. And which is fine. That's cool. Like, you know, and, and, and I leaned more towards kind of 
where you were at earlier when you were like, oh, I'm not an artist, I'm a photographer. Um, yeah. You know, and I've, I've kind of come around to it over time, but, you know, I, I find myself kind of straddling both sides now. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it, it can be very artistic, but I don't think most landscape photography is super artistically expressive. But, you know... Now, as soon as I say that, I'm sure people are going to be throwing things at the screen or yeah, exactly. screaming at their car or whatever. But, like, I don't know. I, I think sometimes these people that have these criticisms of of nature photography and landscape photography, they, to some degree, I think they do have somewhat of a point. Yeah. What so I've, I've wrestled with this one um, from a wide perspective, and I've, been, I've sketched it out a bunch of times on paper, and I've yet to pull the trigger. And it's actually splitting the concept of splitting my portfolio. Um, so somebody logs, logs onto my website, for example, and it would be like iconic and then also the, but then also the artistic. Cause I, there's a part of me that loves the, I still loves the iconic and that sure. iconic as much as I don't want to say it sells. Um, and so when I'm doing art fairs, I'm going to be gravitate. I'm going to sell a picture of half dome 10 to one over a picture of an iceberg in Antarctica even though that iceberg in Antarctica is a unique expression of who I am. So it's like as an artist and as a businessman, I have to balance those two things all together. And I'm trying to figure out the way to be able to display both things on the website and whether that's directing people that are consumers more into one area versus other fellow photographers or other artists all the way through there. Because there's an element of you know, what I would say on the iconic stuff, and I know you've had great conversations about this and I don't need to go down that rabbit hole because other people have summarized it really well, that there probably isn't an element of artistry of setting my camera up uh, to take a, a picture of El Capitan, um, but there's an element of beauty uh, and I'd want that element of beauty. So like for me, I was up there in December after a crazy snowstorm. I'm like, damn right I'm out photographing and capturing that because it was absolutely magical. Yeah. Um, you know, is it a unique image? Is there no, not at all. But is it something that meant a lot to me? Absolutely. And I think that's that's part of it. So I, I wouldn't say this is, you know, an artistic part of me, but it's part of the lover of nature, uh, the right. lover of yeah, the outdoors sure. that yeah, yeah, yeah. or the person that appreciates simple aesthetic beauty, uh, that is part of who I am. So yeah, so I think it's a valid I think it's a valid thing. And I think some photographers would say, oh, I don't want to publish that. I don't want to put that out there. I don't want to show that. Or other people wouldn't even take that picture. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of in between. So. Yeah, no. I, I want the best of both worlds. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm very similar. Like, I, I love both. You know, it's both of them have their place for me and satisfy different parts of kind of what makes me a photographer and why I'm out making pictures and why I'm in nature and why I love it. And at the same time, I think it's totally fair for someone to say, you know, like, hey, yeah, that's a beautiful photo. It showcases the beauty of nature, and and maybe that's maybe that is art. I don't know. I would argue, okay, sure, it, it is art, but it's not necessarily. It doesn't have a full list of artistic qualities in terms of like, you know, representing something else or showcasing an idea or having equivalence to other concepts or whatever. So yeah, you know, I think it is a fair thing to criticize us for yeah yeah but i think it's also you know and i had that conversation with uh, claude fiddler who you've had on before about uh, a future speaker series i'm working on just related to 
you know, the sh- you know, like the showcasing and the legacy and some of the other you know components that go into you know how much effort he puts into putting out one of his you know incredible books and 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 I think that's the key thing for me. And I even said to him, yeah, I have a whole and I do I have a whole body of work I've yet to even display on my website because. I don't have necessarily the words to describe it like an Alex Noriega can put together or some of the stuff I don't think I've processed it to the degree to, to emulate what I want to do or uh, I'm not ready to bring that forward. But there's a huge parts of my work that I'm ready to present and continue to cultivate. So it's just a it's like that goes back to the earlier thing on awareness, like being aware of it. Like if I'm representing a, a piece of, you know, uh, photography of, uh, let's see, Mount Whitney. I sell, I sell a lot of Mount Whitney prints. It's nothing special at all, but it has that emotional connection and contact to people that have been there or seen that or whatever else, and they want that. And do I think my work is a nice piece of Mount Whitney? Absolutely. But is it a unique artistic piece of Mount Whitney? Eh, I don't think so. There's probably better artistic uniqueness out there, but... That's okay. Right. And I think that's okay to like just own it, you know, like own what it is. And it's not necessarily meant to be a value judgment, right? It's not saying like one is better than the other, but it's okay yeah. to, it's also okay, I think, to differentiate the two things. Yeah. I'm, we're in agreement, yeah. Matt. That's good. Okay. Well, I guess we're, I guess we'll not have to Time throw things at it's, each other. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. I will, so shifting gears a little bit, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the differences between quote-unquote, adopting a professional mindset versus, <laughs> quote-unquote, going pro. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so I, te- I talk and teach about this quite a bit, actually, and it's probably one of the things that some people have heard a lot. And I think the quote from uh, Stephen Pressfield, have you ever read, heard of his book, The War of Art? No. Um, so he's the author of uh, Bagger Vance, the, the book that was in, made into a movie, and he oh, writes uh-huh. a couple other books. But he writes one on the war in art, and I love the way he summarizes it. He says, the professional dedicates themselves to mastering techniques, not because they believe technique is a substitute for inspiration, but because they want to be in possession of skills when inspiration does come. And I think that's the idea of a professional mindset, and even what I'm trying to instill when I teach or whatever else, is like not everybody should go pro where they're burdening their creativity by uh, making it produce and support them. Um, But also, I think almost everybody that chooses to practice the art or craft of photography should have the skills to represent themselves when something inspiration kind of comes around. So you should know how to capture something that brings you inspiration. Doesn't mean you need to know all mediums, no. But if you're inspired by the night sky, you need to have some basic skills and basic techniques to be able to capture the night sky. And what I sometimes see is people that think, oh, I'm an amateur. Uh, I just go out for the fun of it. But then they have inspiration that they're trying to communicate that they're not actually able to bring forth. Um, so that's that's a big part of it. I think the other part of it um, that I think a lot of people still struggle with, myself definitely at the top of the list on your listeners, is perfectionism. Um, I think this becomes the idea of an amateur versus a professional mindset is a little bit of, I know I have some photographer friends that are fantastic photographers, but they won't share or show their work because it's not perfect to them. So they, it never comes off of their hard drive. And so that's the balance is like, it doesn't have to be technically perfect. And I think a professional does a really good job or professional mindset of being able to curate and cultivate through it 
and know, okay, this is what's wrong with the image or whatever else, but I can cut my losses and find that framework uh, that kind of works for me all the way through. And so I think that's a big part of it. Uh, the other part of it, and there's a couple interesting business uh, philosophies that kind of get built into this. Um, so I have my M- I have an MBA. Uh, I used to, uh, well, not always successfully been in business, um, but there's a concept called fire bullets then cannonballs, and it comes from this uh, business guru Jim Collins who wrote Good to Great and Born to Last and all this other stuff. Love, love Good yeah. to Great. Yeah, and the idea is simple. Uh, we have a limited amount of gunpowder. So if we think about it, and whether our gunpowder is time, money, creative output um, at our disposal as we search for a target. And time's a big limiter, I think, for all of us. But what happens is, and I see this all the time, is people load all of their creative gunpowder behind one big creative idea, and they fire the largest cannonball they can. And maybe they hit their target, but most of the time they miss it, uh, and then they're out of gunpowder. And so I talk a lot about whether it's in business or even as we're out there trying within the landscape of firing bullets. So these small little things that we're going out there kind of probing to see where we're hitting the target. Oh, we just hit the target. Let's fire another bullet. Oh, we just hit the target again. Well, now maybe we want to load up and go a little bit more into that. And I think that's been kind of a huge part mm-hmm. of my creative journey into this pro mindset, pro part is like, Okay, I'm going to try this. Oh, it didn't work. Well, I haven't invested a lot of time and money and effort into it, so I can try a little bit differently on that. Second big kind of business takeaway that kind of helps for people to understand and that pro mindset is the E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Um, it's called The Entrepreneurial Myth of the E-Myth. And the high-level concept is so good to me is just because you're a great baker doesn't mean you should go open a bakery. And that kind of concept is... Sometimes the very best bakers lose their special sauce if they did um, versus kind of knowing where you're weak and starting to build around that. Um, And so as I mentor, as I talk or whatever else with people that want to make the leap to go pro, it's like why and how, what skills you have, not to say you shouldn't do it, but where and how can you build to kind of supplement around that to kind of get to that point in time. Um, so I think there's plenty of people out there that they lose what made them unique and special when they try to get into that business aspect of things a little bit, but that's just a little bit of that pro mindset versus going pro. So I love that. The, the bullets versus cannonball idea I think is a very good one. And well, I guess I didn't realize that I was doing that, but I'm def- that's definitely been my approach for a long time. It's like <laughs> trying all these little things and seeing what works and what doesn't work. So, yeah, but you, you got to make sure, and I'm not saying, I think you, I know you are, but you got to make sure you're actually firing some bullets because I have too many people that just sit there. I know way too many people that are sitting there just waiting for their, not even using any of their creative gunpowder and trying things. They get, they get paralyzed by fear and, and versus just getting out and doing stuff. So, yeah, I would say I have the opposite problem. I've got like a machine gun and I'm like not remembering that I actually hit the target with it at some point. (laughs) Oh yeah. I hit the target over there. I forgot about that. Exactly. Yeah. That was, that was me first. That was me processing images yesterday. I found this gorgeous image of this uh, early morning sunrise shoot at um, Yellowstone of the Yellowstone Falls. I took it as a long exposure. I'd converted it to black and white. It just is a beautiful, beautiful light, beautiful image. And that was two years ago. And I just finally found it. I'm like, oh, my God, I meant to print this thing like months ago. But that's that's either here nor there. (laughs) Although 
I don't know. That's kind of fun when you when you find an image that you forgot you took that's really yeah. good, and you it's like, oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, what are some of the insights you've gleaned from your quote unquote massive collection <laughs> of photography books? <laughs> uh, first is if you are a professional, then it be, all becomes a business write off. So that's one insight. But uh, no, I've been collecting. Uh, first and foremost, actually, too is. Uh, thriftbooks.com and I'm not affiliated with them but you can pick up uh, a huge amount of books used Um, so I definitely want to support artists when new editions and things come out Uh, but I buy a huge amount I have a whole bunch of uh, Munch books that you'll probably appreciate um, behind me and I picked them up for like less than five bucks a pop uh, and that was including shipping and it's like unbelievable Um, so first and foremost I just got to say this I respect Cole Thompson I love Cole Thompson. I love his work. He's going to be part of my summer speaker series. Uh, But his concept of photographic celibacy, uh, which is basically the not looking at others' work for fear of influence in your own, um, I think is probably the single worst piece of advice amateurs or people that are early on could follow um, in their work. Because, you know, for me, photography is really an excuse. it's an excuse to get out into nature, spend more time connecting with the natural environment, um, what we're feeling or seeing out there. And I have like probably over 500, actually not probably, I have over 500 related books on creativity, naturalism, technical travel, uh, and the traditional co- coffee table books. And what these do is load my brain with inspirations of places to go uh, and some framework to also organize my thoughts and share my work. Uh, this all helps me to kind of define that intent. And my intent is not to ever see a picture and go, oh my God, I need to go copy that. But why am I drawn to a particular image or a particular place or what a writer was seeing or feeling or experiencing? Um, So that has been really helpful for me um, all the way through. It's also interesting because I would say within photography books, this goes back to a little bit of that artistic thing we're talking about. I feel like, you know, social media or whatever else, or even websites, we're promoting what's commercially viable. But I feel like when you look at artist books, I just got Alistair Ben's new book or whatever else, people are here to promote much more of the personally expressive side uh, of their work. And that becomes a really good way to look look at those. Yeah, I think I was just trying to look up. We had Cole Thompson on the podcast, like back on like, I don't know, episode 100 and something. But yeah, I think what you said makes total sense. And I actually 100% agree with you because actually that's how creativity from what I understand like studies on creativity show that like the people that are typically the most creative have tons of inspiration from all kinds of different sources and I will say that the idea of photo celibacy if you can modify it a little bit in terms of like you know not going out of your way to study photos of a particular location before you go there or things like that. I think that's actually a good idea because it does, I think it can, depending on your personality, I think it can kind of like put, put you into the position of copying images and not being (laughs) as creative as you can be. So I do think there is merit to what he's teaching, but I also agree with you. Yeah. (laughs) I think both 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 perspectives are valid. No, I totally, yeah, I totally get, but I think the funny thing is too, when you, we talk about the, photographic celebrity sometimes you go to a place and there literally is only like one composition like oh yeah the composition you saw is literally the only composition you could possibly ever shoot there but 
it's right. here and there. So no, it is true. <laughs> yeah, no, that's funny. Yeah, photo books. I'm a big fan of photo books. I mean, we we've been having a really good time putting together the photo books for NLPA and. Oh, they're absolutely fantastic. I can't. It's. I can't wait to get the new one. Get it to me quick. Come on. Okay, and we're we're working on it. Well, I know. There's somewhere in the ocean. I don't know. They're on the way. <laughs> Although hopefully by the time this episode's air, they'll be shipped. So. There we go. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think photo books can be incredible. Um, all right. Let's talk about this huge, amazing undertaking that you've gotten yourself into. You recently created uh, what you call the Speaker Series, which you've kind of mm -hmm. alluded to a, little, a few times here. And it's on your website that's called naturephotographyclasses.com. Um, you've had or will have Mark Adamus, Aaron Bobnick, Guy Tell, Josh Cripps, Sarah Marino, Eric Bennett, Alistair Ben, all former guests of the podcast, by the way, and many, many others. How did you come up with this idea and what is it all about? And if people get emails from you, how do they know that it's a legit thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, so people that get emails and so a couple of people did apply to be possible future speakers. So it, it is designed to showcase, uh, you know, people that are well known that I have, you know, some of which I have personal relationships and contacts with. Uh, some that don't give often often give presentations, but also, you know, the intention is to bring forth people that nobody's heard about. Um, and so, you know, some of these people are well known, obviously, and they've earned their rights to to have that. And that's the reason I'm having them. But a lot of others. So. So, yeah, if I if you received an email because I had targeted people that specifically have been on the podcast before, but uh, uh, it wasn't a scam by any stretch. And some people did submit uh, and I'll be reviewing presentations because I put together these groupings. Uh, of particular topics and so we're just wrapping up on tuesday well after the series it'll be done but we just wrapped up one on uh just a spring series on the called for the love and landscape we're going to be starting in late june one on black and white uh so sarah sarah marino cole john barclay jennifer king and huba who will be on that um super excited and then a whole bunch of other ones going forward but the idea of the creation of nature photography classes was a specific mission, and that was helping nature photographers who are interested in deeper connections create more impactful images so they can confidently and consistently express themselves. So as we unpack that, like it's my belief we're all looking for connection as, as humans, not just as photographers. Um, so this becomes part of that way to connect to the natural environment, connect to ourselves all the way through. So how do we further that? Second part of that, well, creating more impactful images. Well, I don't want you to bring about the beautiful, you know, stunningly gorgeous dope, dope photos or whatever else. I want you to be able to bring forth images of impact. And these are people that I bring in that create images that are different, that bring forth something else. And then that final part, kind of going back to the professional mindset, well, that confidence and consistency to express yourselves. So people can ask questions of these you know, leading educators. They can get lots of information. But for me, I've come through and really kind of weeded out a lot of people to get to this period of time because I want to see you as a participant grow in your confidence and your consistency uh, all the way through. So that's been a big part of it. For me, it's giving back um, in a, the form of the Inspired Creator, which I think we'll probably talk about in a little bit but also just really giving back to that audience that's been with me through the whole period of time. Uh, feedback's been exceptionally positive from people that have taken these classes and courses. Uh, high sign-up rates, a lot of good engagement. The speakers love it, so it's been really great all the way around. 
I was looking at your website for this, and it looks like for the classes that have already happened, you still have it made available to where people can watch yep. them, and, and, and so that's really cool too. Yeah, so they can still go back and, and watch them, and you get permanent access to them, uh, which is kind of nice. So this allows people to build their own libraries. They can download the videos. They can have them when they log in because um, sometimes you'll you know sign up to – you know, a particular conference or whatever, and the talks are available for 30 days or 24 hours, and you have to you have to watch them at your schedule. And we, we only get about a third of the people that sign up actually come live. So that means about two thirds. And we have people that are all over the world that are watching these whenever they want to. People are doing it however they want. And that's, that's a big part is that flexibility component. That's amazing. And then you've got like a... Comp- well, a companion project that kind of yeah. goes along with this called the Inspired Creator, and I'd love for you to tell us about that. Yeah, so we are in the process. I need to get get on it. It's on my list. On the <laughs> list, Matt, of uh, notifying. Uh, there'll be eight recipients this year. Uh, we're distributing uh, ten thousand uh, dollars in cash, not just as a joke, uh, to people that are looking to bring forth. Uh, a different type of project or kind of uh, ways of looking at it, whether that's preservation of place, preservation of space, preservation of, you know, your personal self as well. So there's a lot of different elements that go into it. So it's been really cool. Um, We're doing some incubator awards uh, and these are people that are just getting started. Um, So it's going to have a creativity uh, kickstart pack of books. So the artist's way, uh, Eric Bennett's book, Conversations with Nero, uh, Nature, Sarah Marino's ebooks and video tutorials, a uh, book called Big Magic from Elizabeth Gilbert, Guy Tall's book, More Than a Rock, uh, and William Neal's book on portfolio development. The idea being is some people are applying, but yet they're not quite ready for funding or whatever else, but they can need some ways to kind of understand this framework to look at that. Um, so the idea is you can start there, then you move into the seed award. Um, this includes portfolio critiques from Eric Bennett, um, some cash to kind of get your project going, and then move it into phase two, uh, which will be the thing. And then the biggest one, uh, these are people that have projects that are basically ready to go. Um, this is includes portfolio reviews and mentoring, but also cash uh, to kind of really push things forward, um, notoriety. So there are going to be some really exciting awards uh, all the way around. Uh, the 2024, 2024 awards will open up at the end of May, uh, and they'll be awarded in December. Uh, and it should be at least another 10000 possibly even more. Uh, so we donate, I donate 10% of the proceeds from all course sales, speaker sales, et cetera, off of nature photography classes. Uh, and 100% goes into this. I mean, 10% of that goes into this. And so that's what's been funding it. So I'm pretty excited. Um and what that's, that's going to do, hopefully, continue to grow over time as we kind of seed the next generation of creatives. That's amazing. I, I might have to pick your brain on that because something we've been batting around for NLPA is to try to create um, a bursar, which is kind of the same idea where you're a scholarship of sorts uh, to kind of get somebody, maybe someone from a, you know, an undeveloped country or maybe someone from a, you know, from a underprivileged background, give them the opportunity to engage in nature and landscape photography that so many of us have just, you know, become so privileged and yeah. able to do. So no, exactly. Yeah, the ins- the initial inspiration came uh, when I was in Bolivia uh, last about a year ago, and we were in the Alto Plano, and our guide didn't have enough clothes to even stay warm, uh, and it was freezing oh, wow. there. 
and he, we're going by these areas and he's talking about oh they're gonna they're looking at mining over here but yet this is a beautiful thing and it was like well wait a second if this guy had a camera he could probably sell prints to the people he's taking around and he could also educate these local causes with images because he's always out here uh so that became a big kind of thing like wait a second we could do that um so that's the intention i didn't get any international applic uh, sorry i didn't get any applicants this year that fit that kind of criteria I had, a, I had some international applicants but they were more um probably towards the bucket of we're talking about like hey life's good you know things are good we have we have the opportunity to do the things we want versus people really getting them in the landscape so i'd love to love to talk further about that for sure yeah it's just hard getting the word out to the right people you know yeah that's the challenge yeah especially when you're not on social media but <laughs> right yeah <laughs> Yeah, Whoops. maybe now you have an excuse. Someone yeah, exactly. else can do it for you. <laughs> no, but I was I was really uh, there was only a couple applicants that we just I straight up declined. Uh, some of them were under consideration. So even for a first year that wasn't really published that much, it did really it did well, and we got some great projects. So I'm excited. And uh, how are are you the only one evaluating these, or is do you have uh, I had two or? other people about help me evaluate this year. Uh, and then next year, uh, I'm going to do a formal kind of a formal evaluate. It'll be more formal. You'll know who helps me evaluate and people will know what they have to value, help evaluate in the future. But yeah, I had a couple people evaluate kind of like, you know, in their spare time, basically. So, but that's awesome. Oh, well, I think it's a, it's all a great idea and I can't wait to learn more about that and see, see the results and what comes out of it. Cause I think it's yeah, you fantastic. Bet. All right. Well, last question. Who do you recommend for the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> well, shoot. I sent you the list and the people I had because I'd, I'd mind your, I'd mind your, uh, uh, your list of past speakers to make sure. And I don't know if he's kept it, but uh, I would definitely recommend. I don't know if you've approached him before. Or maybe it's Tony Sweet. Um, so I had him on for the speaker series. He talked about infrared photography. Uh, super nice guy. Um, tons of knowledge. He's been doing this. He's like a Nikon master of light or whatever they give him. Um, he specializes in infrared, but oh my gosh, his way of speaking and talking about light and the places was really fantastic. Uh, another person, I just finished his book, uh, Sean Tucker. His book is called The Meaning in the Making. Uh, it's a book on creativity. He's a photographer. A lot of creativity books you read are written by creativity experts and they don't really dovetail into photography. Uh, he brings in... Uh, a religious background, which isn't off-putting. He's not like over, but he has that kind of deeper philosophy on a lot of stuff. Um, and I really enjoyed his stuff. He's based in the UK. Uh, he's got a pretty big YouTube channel. So those are two I don't think have been on that I definitely would recommend without a doubt. Awesome. Well, Nick, this has been awesome. And I had a fantastic time talking to you. Since you're not on social media, what's the best way for people to <laughs> learn more about you and to see your work? Yeah, so uh, I run two websites, unfortunately, which becomes a burden. But uh, Stover Photo, S-T-O-V-E-R, photo.com is my personal work. Uh, they can also connect to me for the classes, courses, upcoming speakers, uh, and past speakers at naturephotographyclasses.com. And they both kind of link back and forth. So definitely, if you hear the podcast, drop me a note. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Love it, man. Well, thanks. This has been super fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Matt. Of course. Nick for the fantastic conversation and for doing so much to give back to our community. You're the man. 
I hope people take advantage of signing up for a discount to your courses and speaker series over at naturephotographyclasses.com. Remember, you can use the code FSTOP for a discount and gain access to some of the best nature photography educational materials that exist anywhere. Well, you heard Nick and I talk a bit on the podcast about NLPA or the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. For those not on Patreon who are listening early, you might be interested to know that NLPA opens for year three in just three days on June 1st. That's right, in just three days, we will open the system to begin accepting your incredible images. We've added new categories this year, including a black and white prize, so be sure to go to naturallandscapeawards.com to see what's new. The best thing to do is to sign up to our mailing list to stay up to date. Please do reach out to me personally should you have any questions. We can't wait to see your entries. Thanks again for supporting our project. We really can't do this without you. That's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.